0: Good evening. evening. Welcome to Lenten Live Ash Wednesday. Welcome online. Uh, It is good just to be in a room, a smaller room that you can hear everyone's voices and sing. So thank you for coming out. And we have this idea for the next seven weeks that we'll gather right here in this room, seven o'clock on Wednesday nights for Uh, just a few worship songs and a time of reflection in the word and Jonathan Thede who's our new uh, director of young adult ministries put together the idea for this series did a great job and you're going to get to hear from him Bryce Vaught who's new to our staff team Chris Jameson, David Bowens, uh, Dan Irvin, George Palumbo over the next seven weeks. So it'll be a great time uh, just to be able to be here week after week after week. And the series is called In My Place. And I'll talk about that in just a few moments. But first, I just want to talk about Lent. So how many of you here grew up in some kind of a Catholic background or a liturgical background that had Lent. All right, that's a pretty good number. Now, I did not. And so my experience of Lent and Ash Wednesday was a little different. So I grew up in a very Catholic town, but I did not grow up attending a Catholic church. And so what I first experienced was some kids would come to school with the ashes on their forehead and I'd always be like, you have something on your head. Because I had no idea that that was a thing, and then what happened was, as I got a little older, I realized that the whole like school lunch program was built around the Lent. Does anyone know what I'm talking about here? You remember you get those nasty fish sticks that that you get served on Friday, and I'm like, why is there nasty fish? Sti-? Oh, it's Lent. And what's happened in recent years, at least in, in some circles, is a lot of churches that are not Catholic or Anglican, and we can claim some of that heritage having been planted by St. Stephen's, an Episcopalian Anglican tradition, uh, so we can claim Lent here. But a lot of churches outside of kind of that tradition have started glomming on to Lent. And all of a sudden, you've had a lot of critique of this out in the broader Christian culture. If you hop online, you can read all about this, and there will be people who say, what are you doing celebrating Lent if you're not Catholic? How dare you? Okay, Carl Truman, professor at Grove City, who writes well on a lot of things, put it this way. He said, As the 4th of July makes no sense for the English or the Chinese to celebrate, so it makes no sense for Presbyterians, Baptists, or free church evangelicals to celebrate Lent. But then he goes on and he says, But I believe with an unswerving commitment in Christian liberty, therefore I believe we should not forbid anybody from practicing it or compel anybody. So he said nothing about that. Um, and now, my, my point is just this, and that is, if for you, Lent has some significance, or it hasn't had much significance, the point is not for somebody to compel you and say, what are you giving up? You must give up something. And for you to feel some kind of a guilt, um, perfunctory way of doing something. But there is something beautiful about people who say, I want to take the mark of Christ in public, and I'm willing to say, what would it look like for me to give something up for a season so I can experience a little bit of sacrifice in recognition of what Jesus has done. Now, giving something up is not like, well, I was gonna give up chocolate anyway, so I gave up chocolate. Okay, that's probably not what's in view here. Probably a better way of thinking about this is what, if you gave it up, would allow you to have time or would force you to have time to spend time thinking about spiritual things? And my guess is for many of us, it would be a lot more effective to give up media, social media, news, politics, sports, okay, now we're meddling. (laughs) And say, would I use some of that time to seek Christ rather than those kind of inane pursuits? I was watching the news the other day, and there's some bad news around. Have have you noticed that? I mean, there there are some things going on right now that are downright concerning. Uh, I mean, this war situation... I don't think it's a huge step to say, we could be headed toward uh, some serious things in our world, in the world economy and some of these things. And I started to get agitated as I watched this stuff. I started to get this, and, and, and I had that moment of, what if I stopped watching news for 40 days and put all my attention to scripture? Okay, now again, I'm, in a sense, with Truman, even though I made fun of him. It's not compelled. But I think that would be a better way to think about Lent. And Lent has been this idea of 40 days. And if you're doing the math uh, from today until Easter, it's actually 46 days. Um, So why 40? Well, the way that that's been done is the six Sundays between now and Easter are days of feasting so you can break your fast. Okay? At least that's the, the... official answer of people in the Catholic Church. So, here's what uh, one devotional said about this. This is from Bread and Wine, which is a little reading for Lent season. It says, to observe Lent is to strike at the root of complacency surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus. Lent, literally springtime, is a time of preparation, a time to return to the desert where Jesus spent 40 trying days preparing for his ministry. He allowed himself to be tested, and if we're serious about following him, we will do the same, okay? There's the should that people say, "Eh, I'm not sure I wanna go there, but, but here's what they say. Lent is traditionally associated with penitence, fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. It's a time for giving things up, balanced by giving to those in need. Lent should never be morose, an annual ordeal during which we begrudgingly forgo a handful of pleasures, Instead, we ought to approach Lent as an opportunity, not a requirement. After all, it's meant to be the church's springtime, a time when out of the darkness of sin's winter, a repentant and empowered people emerge. I love that statement. Lent is a season in which we are surprised by joy. Our self-sacrifices serve no purpose unless, by laying aside this or that desire, we are able to focus on our heart's deepest longing, unity with Christ, In him, in his suffering and his death and resurrection and triumph, we find our truest rest. And so the hope of these next several weeks and the gatherings here on Wednesday night is that that is what would happen if we come and we spend some time contemplating what God is doing. So with that said, our first consideration is in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, single verse says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I heard a story a long time ago, and I'm going to tell you this story the best I remember it, and I want you to just think as I'm telling this story, what is wrong with this story theologically, okay? So, so this is not intended to be exact. But the story was basically this, and that is there's a man who worked at a train yard, and he had worked there for years, and he took his son to the train yard often to play and to hang out while he would work. And one day he was there, and his son was out playing on the tracks, and the train was coming. And he realized that he had the opportunity to either divert the train off the track and to another track and it would ultimately crash with the train and all kinds of people would die or he could let the train hit his son and the people would continue on their way. And so the man thought about it as he had this choice for a moment and he held the switcher firm and the train hit his son. He watched it happen, he watched his son die Getting hit by the train, he watched the people in the train eating and drinking and playing cards, having a good time, no idea the sacrifice he had made. Now, when I heard that years ago, the way that it was kind of said to me is, you're like the person on the train, and God has sacrificed his son for you, and you don't even understand the depth of uh, of the sacrifice he's made. And I think the the, the point was to make us, who were listening, feel a little guilty and a little compelled to say, okay, I'll do better living for Jesus because he sacrificed so much for me. So what's the theological problem? Well, hold that in your mind just for a moment, and I want to just show you this verse again, okay? God which in the original language God's name doesn't actually appear here, God doesn't appear, it just says he, but it's a clear reference to the verse before where it says, be reconciled to God, he, God, so that's why it's supplied. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So first word here is God. And when you think of God, what do you think of? And this is an important question because in our culture today, there has been a shift. And what I mean when I say there has been a shift is there has been a shift from, from people basically saying, well, God is good for those who need God, and go ahead and believe in God if that's good for you, to I'm pretty sure that whatever version of God I believe in, I'm right and everyone else is wrong. And, and the way that you see it today is it's set into kind of virtuous and non-virtuous people, and you see this in the political dialogue where it's no longer just you have a different political view, but you're evil if you're on the other side, okay? Do you know what I'm talking about? And this has, ha- has infiltrated the thinking, but Paul David Tripp in his uh, newer book on doctrine uh, said this. He said, this is your God. He's a ho- he is holy in every way possible in all he is and in all he does. He's the source of everything that exists, and he does not need anything that exists. His knowledge of everything is always accurate, and he's forever without the need of being taught anything. He is never surprised, never unaware, never unprepared, never confused, never distraught. He never needs to discover, and he never needs to unlearn or relearn anything. What he thinks, Purposes declares and does is always right and true and his judgments are never mistaken biased or wrong. Now why do I read that here this evening? Because our response to God can be to say well I deny that there is a God or I believe in a God but I try to avoid God or I believe and I confess. But what Paul David Tripp says in his book on doctrine here is that the most common response to God is to believe, but to act like what he calls a practical atheist. And what he means by that is that what we tend to do is we tend to say, yes, I believe that there's a God, but I live functionally as if there isn't. And here's how he explains this. He says, what I am pointing to here are those moments when we think, desire, speak, and act as if God doesn't exist. Perhaps it's the moment we cheat on an exam or give way to gossip. Maybe it's the moment that we give way to lust or make ourselves the center of attention by taking too much credit. Maybe it's buying something we don't need because we have, when we have nothing left to contribute to the work of God's kingdom. Maybe it's being nasty to your wife or selfish and demanding with your husband. Perhaps it's the moment when you decide the acceptance of your friend is more important than obeying your parents. Maybe it's permitting angry outbursts against the children you were called to patiently and faithfully nurture. Or it could be the moment of road rage or anger with a fellow worker. Perhaps it's a circumstance where you functionally worship a created thing more than you do the creator. You may not have any inconsistencies in your theology of God, yet we all have functional inconsistencies in the way we live out our theology in places, situations, and relationships in our daily lives. And what I think he's driving at here is that when we don't have worship and awe and wonder for God, what happens is then the idea that's coming next about God gave him who was no sin doesn't really move us because functionally we're living as if there is no God or we're, we're buying into our cultural narratives that say, in essence, I'm virtuous compared to other people. You know, it used to be the church was full of self-righteous people. Now culture is way more self-righteous than people in the church because people are saying... I know that my way is good and right. And that's a functional way of denying the existence of God. So God made him who had no sin. Now here, this is a clear allusion to Jesus Christ. And sometimes people will debate sin... But the point here is very simple, and that is theologically, Jesus Christ is the only one who was ever innocent. He is the one who did not know sin in any way, shape, or form. And this is an important piece of understanding theology, an important piece of understanding um, what this season is all about, because if sin is not an issue, then there is really no point in being concerned about Ash Wednesday, Lent, Good Friday, and Easter. But what Christian theology teaches very clearly is that Jesus is without sin. I'll read one more quote and then I'll be done reading, but Fleming Rutledge put it this way. Christianity is unique. The world's religions have certain traits in common, but until the gospel of Jesus Christ burst upon the Mediterranean world, no one else in the history of human imagination had conceived of such a thing as the worship of a crucified man. The early Christian preaching announced the entrance of God upon the stage of history in the person of an itinerant Jewish teacher who had been ingloriously pinned up alongside two of society's castoffs to die horribly. Horribly. Rejected and condemned by religious and secular authorities alike, discarded onto the garbage heap of humanity, scornfully forsaken by both elites and common folk, leaving behind only a discredited and demoralized handful of scruffy disciples who had no status whatsoever in the eyes of anyone. The peculiarity of this beginning for the world-transforming faith is not sufficiently acknowledged. Too often, today's Christians are lulled into thinking of their own faith as one of the religions without realizing that the central claim of Christianity is oddly irreligious at its core. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that the weakness and suffering of Christ was and remains a reversal of what the religious person expects from God. So God made him who had no sin, and then the phrase is, to be sin for us. Okay, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So if Jesus is innocent, now this is talking about imputation. Now, how many of you have heard the word imputation? If you've ever done a theology class, you've heard the word. But the idea of imputation is the idea that, that in Romans 5, Adam was the one who sinned, therefore all are guilty of sin. This is Romans 5, 12. And yet, because Jesus went to the cross, He died for all who end up believing in him, and he's the representative for all, and so there's an imputation of Adam's sin to all people, but then there's an imputation of sin onto the person of Christ on our behalf. You could almost put it this way, it's a little bit like like if you watch the Olympics and there's a team that goes to the Olympics and somebody from the track team wins a race and they win and they stand on the podium and the flag goes up of the whole country, that team gets it. And so, and so the message in a sense is everybody's on Team Adam, whether you want to be or not. It doesn't mean you don't have actual sin, but you do have actual sin, but you're on Team Adam and yet you can be on Team Jesus also and have him take your sin. You know, if we were just to imagine, like, say a disaster happened, say a train sp- kind of crashed and had some hazardous chemicals that spilled. And uh, just imagine with me that this happened. And imagine that, that, that the idea was, well, the people who live close are, are in danger, but the farther out you get, the safer you are. So, you know, if you're 50 miles away, you're probably okay, you hope. But, you know, if you're a couple hundred miles away, you're, you're almost certainly okay uh, kind of a thing. That's how, how, how people today tend to think about sin. But what the scripture says is everybody's contaminated. And that's why we need God, who's perfectly holy, to take him who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that his innocence would be imputed to us. And then the the final phrase here is so that we can be the righteousness of God. And this is such a beautiful statement that is so often neglected. Because what we tend to do, and I'm guilty of this, is focus on this imputation of Adam's sin to all humanity, imputation of Jesus, of the sin to Jesus. But in Romans 5, here in this this verse, what we also see is that the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to people. Look at what it says. That we might become what? The righteousness of God. It doesn't say just purely not guilty, but that you actually become the righteousness of God. You become what Jesus was. You become, to God the Father, innocent, if you believe because of the imputating work of Jesus Christ. That's what it means that Jesus died in our place. Imagine maybe it this way, if there's a child who has consistently done something his parents did not want him to do, and he's left with a babysitter one evening, and he does the thing that the parents don't want, and the parents are coming home and they're mad, and the babysitter just simply says, you know what, it was me, I did it, I'm sorry. I, I, you know, I don't know what came over me, but I did it. And, and the kid and the babysitter and the parents all know that, that, that the kid really did it, but the parents are like, okay, we'll let it go, because it's the babysitter. And everybody kind of like, sometimes that's how we think about forgiveness. Like, God forgives me because Jesus, but he knows, I know, everybody knows. (laughs) The picture would be better to say the babysitter, and this breaks down, the the babysitter gives his or her full status to that child. Here's my driver's license. Here's my student ID. You can go and do anything that I can do. Because I'm giving you my status. To be given the righteousness of Christ means that when God looks at you and me, he doesn't go, oh yeah, you're the the messed up sinner. But he says, I see you with the full righteousness and innocence of Jesus Christ. You see why that original train story had a theological flaw? It isn't just that, that God's like, oh, you should feel guilty for, for my son's death because you're partying, going down the train track. It's he has imputed the righteousness of God himself through Jesus to you, full status, full giving, of who he is, so that when God sees you, that's what he sees. Maybe Lent is a way for us to think about how that gap exists and how God, in the imputation and declaration of our innocence, sees us not through the gap, but without the gap. You know, one of the parts of the Catholic tradition that I did learn in the city that I grew up in was Fat Tuesday. Do you all know what Fat Tuesday is? It's where you indulge all the things that you're not supposed to do during Lent. And so, you know, when I was in high school, Fat Tuesday was like, it's Fat Tuesday! So, you know, I wanted to keep some traditions from my hometown. <laughs> and, um, and so yesterday, I was like, it's Fat Tuesday. <laughs> and uh, I had gone to dinner with my mom last night, and so I ordered a burger, I went home, I had some cheesecake that was left over. I mean, I, I did it up. And not that I was planning really to do any, like, big Lent give up right away, but do you know what happened? Fat Tuesday became wide Wednesday today. Because <laughs> after I had the cheesecake last night and the burger, I got up this morning and I was like, I'm hungry. Now, my point is just this, and that is I didn't really want to f- celebrate Fat Tuesday yesterday, but something in me said, Fat Tuesday? I, why not? And then the next day, it was, here I go again. And here's what, here's what Lent and the gap and any discipline that you bring to bear reminds you and me, and that is that, that ultimately, when I can't keep my best efforts, that God doesn't say, you're like the kid with the babysitter, but he says, I have imputed innocence to you. Is that good news? I'm going to pray. And then we're going to have a quiet moment for you just to sit in quiet and pray, confess, decide whatever you want to do with Lent. No pressure for anybody to do anything. And then Kirk's going to come and sing a song called Innocent. And it's a song that's from Barabbas's point of view, the, the, the man who was on the cross and how he was declared innocent. and If you want, during that time, you can come and partake in communion. Uh, there are four different stations here. All the different modes are available, but you can dunk the bread in and take it. And then when that's done, there will be another song, uh, and that will be a participation song. Um, and so you can either return to your seats and then sing um, to gather in one voice in declaration for what God has done, or you can come and take communion during the second song, uh, however that works for you and just your own rhythm of prayer, um, kind of repentance in this moment, and to come. But, but, but this is a moment where you come and you say, God, you have declared me innocent. Now, Lent is still a time to say, but God, that doesn't mean that I say, it's Fat Tuesday, Wide Wednesday, Thick Thursday. <laughs> but it is a time for me to say, wherever I end up, God, you through Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin became sin for me so that I might be the righteousness of God declared innocent by the God God. Of the universe. And that is what we come here today to celebrate. God, I ask that you would help each one of us in these moments to connect to you and to your heart for us. God, I thank you that Jesus, who knew no sin, was made sin so that your righteousness would become ours. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So take a few moments of silent reflection and prayer.